This episode is supported by Code Comments, an original podcast from Red Hat. You know when you're working on a project and you leave behind a small note in the code, a code comment, to help others learn what isn't clear in the code? This podcast features technologists who've been through the tough tech transitions and share how their teams survived the journey. In each episode, Red Hat's Jamie Parker recounts the behind-the-scenes stories of experienced technologists from across the industry who share what they've learned from implementing new technologies. Episodes are available anywhere you listen to podcasts and at redhat.com slash code comments podcast. Search for code comments in your favorite podcast player, and we'll also include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to code comments for their support. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well as we begin to get towards the end of November 2023. Uh, For those of us in the United States, uh, we are getting very close to the Thanksgiving holiday season, my favorite holiday of the year. A nice three or four day break, lots of good food, lots of time with family, get to watch some football, all sorts of good things. But anyways, hope everybody's doing well. Uh, it has been an interesting week here in uh, in technology, interesting end of the week, if you're listening to this like on Sunday or Monday. Um, last week, uh, OpenAI held their first open uh, OpenAI day, I guess, if you will, or OpenAI dev day. Um, all sorts of interesting demos. Uh, there's lots of things in the show notes. I think Aaron covered it somewhat in Cloud News of the Week. And then uh, Friday, just uh, the other day, uh, AI, OpenAI announced that they had let go of their CEO, Sam Altman, uh, and then a couple of other people uh, who were some of the early founders uh, left as well. I think the chairman left as well. Um, I am not going to cover that on this week's show. It's just, uh, it broke late Friday night. There really isn't a whole lot of details out yet. There's probably all sorts of speculation. So we're going to wait a little bit and see how that goes. Um, We will probably try and cover it at some point, maybe not specifically about this, but kind of what it means when there are major changes at a company. What I want to cover today was uh, an interesting tweet that I saw, an interesting question that somebody asked, actually a friend of the show, uh, Forrest Brazil, uh, who is over at Google, but has been on the show a couple of times, both in his work with Google, but also with a cloud guru uh, for somebody who we we very much respect, uh, kind of uh, uh, keeps technology fun, if you will, a very smart guy, but keeps technology fun. And he asked a question and he said, uh, I'm looking for recommendations. What's the best book ever written about the dot-com bubble? So the dot-com bubble being the 2000-2001 internet bubble, the dot-com bubble, uh, basically sort of the first big um, technology implosion, if you will, that most of us were familiar with. And what he said was, I'm specifically looking for something that captures the emotion of that time as well as the mechanics. And when I saw the tweet, uh, having lived through it, and it was sort of at the early part of my career, um, I thought, boy, this would be fun. I'm going to have Forrest on the show. And, uh, you know, he's he's younger than myself. I think he's probably about 15 years younger than myself, uh, give or take, as best I can tell from, uh, you know, from from LinkedIn. Uh, and I thought, boy, it'd be, it'd be fun. We'll, we'll have him on the show and we'll let him ask questions and I'll, uh, or he can ask me questions and uh, we'll kind of walk through what it was like because, as I mentioned to him online, and I offered him a chance to come on. I said, you know, come on. I, I, I lived through it, uh, both as sort of a, an insider in the technology world, as well as sort of an outsider, uh, not necessarily living directly in Silicon Valley, um, and and have the the scars and bruises to sort of prove it. Unfortunately, uh, couldn't couldn't arrange that. Couldn't get make that happen with Forrest. But I thought what I would do is is do somewhat of a retrospective on what how did the the first sort of internet craze take off? So. I'm going to call it sort of a, a history from about 19, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, all the way through the internet bubble, 2000, 2001, 2002. What lessons did we learn um, from that? And I'm going to do this as probably kind of either a two-part or a three-part thing to go through and hopefully do this before the end of the year. What happened in the dot-com bubble burst? What happened in the 2008 uh, sort of financial crash that uh, was mostly driven by banking and mortgages and so forth, but had a huge impact on technology as it was really the beginning of when cloud kind of got started. And then we'll talk a little bit about this last one we've had. Um, and I know I've talked about it a little bit, but kind of what happened with, um, you know, the pandemic and, uh, you know, kind of some of the craziness that was going on with the pandemic between crypto and a lot of those things. 
because I think it's really important to to have some sense of history. And I know folks in some cases are like, ah, oh, history's boring. Um, but in the, especially in the sense of technology, in the case of technology, uh, having a little sense of of sort of historically what has happened, what has come before you, uh, what decisions did people make, what drove certain things uh, is really kind of important because, you know, as an industry, we tend to be intrinsically linked to the economy, uh, the broader world economy. And sometimes we are, uh, we, the tech industry and the tech as a whole, um, are huge drivers of what's going on in the economy. And sometimes we are, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the other side of it, we are influenced by what's happening in the economy. So it's it's very, very important to understand historically, both technically as well as economically, kind of why certain things happen, because there's there's a tendency sometimes to get wrapped up in what's going on in the latest trends of the time and sort of lose the big picture context. And so I thought it would be interesting as Forrest asked for something like this to try and create something. You know, he may completely hate it. Uh, it this hopefully is useful, but um, you know, to try and provide some perspective on that and what lessons we learned, what lessons carried forward into the next era or two eras, and then maybe some similarities that we're seeing between uh, you know, what was going on back then and some of the things that we're seeing right now, whether it was you know, coming out of the pandemic or this new boom with AI or all those sorts of things. So we're going to get into that after the break. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the latest trends in enterprise tech? Look no further than the Breaking Analysis podcast with Dave Vellante. This data-driven program dives into the most important topics facing the enterprise tech industry today. With a data-first approach that leverages ETR's renowned surveys of IT decision makers and insight from the Cube community, Breaking Analysis delivers in-depth research on the most important topics facing technologists and IT buyers. Whether you're a business leader, an IT professional, investor, or just an avid follower of the industry, this podcast is a must-listen. Just search Breaking Analysis Podcast wherever you get your podcast and tune in today to stay ahead of the game in enterprise tech. And we're back. And as I was thinking about this uh, this question from Forrest, you know, what's the best book ever written about the dot-com bubble? Looking for something that captures the emotions of the time as well as the mechanics. You know, as I started digging back into it, because, uh, you know, as, as you get a little bit older, sometimes you don't remember things or you don't, you don't immediately remember them and you have to go back and kind of do some research on them. Um, as I was putting this one together, I was like, boy, this, this could be a really, really, really long show. How am I going to kind of frame this such that it addresses both sort of the, the technology at the time, what we were thinking about, what was possible, what were the limitations, but also what were the, the macro level issues, the economic level issues, the technology, the competitive issues at the time, um, and, and do they have any relevance to what was going on today? So I made a bunch of notes. Um, I'm going to try, I'm probably going to uh, put what I can in the show notes. Sometimes there's some character limitations in the show notes that we publish, but I'm also going to just put my raw notes. I'll put a link to them in the show notes so that uh, you don't lose some of this stuff. But let me let me do this first. Let me kind of provide some background uh, around what was going on at the time, uh, economically, technologically, uh, legally going on at the time, because a lot of that is really, really important to understand, oh, okay, this is why there was certain booms. This is why certain things happened. Um that that were really really foundational and and a lot of this we've now built upon you know kind of the classic uh, standing on the shoulders of giants but as an industry we've now sort of built upon a lot of these things a lot of people have sort of forgotten about them but uh you know it's important to sort of know where some of these things came from so let me put a few things in, in context and I'm going to go back to roughly 1993 1994ish just because if we go back too too far then we get into other stuff that was just technology but I want to provide a few concepts to people, and then I want to provide sort of a sense of what the technology landscape was like that. Because as I went back through and made this list, there was a lot of it that I was like, oh, wow, pe- people people of a certain age and a certain generation aren't going to believe that that the things that they use every day today that they completely take for granted didn't exist at all less than you know 20 to 25 years ago. So a couple of things just in terms of pure timing. Uh, so 1993, uh, the Mosaic web browser is launched. Um, this is uh, the, a lot of the work that was being done out of uh, University of Illinois, um, Urbana, uh, Champaign. Uh, so a lot of the work that um, whether or not he was the original creator of it or not, uh, that Mark Andreessen was heavily involved with. So there was a whole team of people at University of Illinois and and others as the internet was growing uh, that created the Mosaic web browser. 
Um, he and a few other people went on to form a company called Netscape in 1994, and that company IPO'd in 1995. So 1993, uh, the web browser as sort of a public piece of technology goes out there. Um, in 1994, the company that's behind it, trying to monetize it, commercialize it, uh, goes out there as Netscape. 1995, they go IPO. So I, I point that out first and foremost because the web browser is one of those moments sort of like the iPhone moment and sort of like the chat GPT moment where there was a lot of interesting technology before that, but the web browser became, you know, the uh, interface of the masses at the time, right? So the other thing I, I point out for that is think about the timing of uh, 1993 web browser comes out, 1994 company launches, 1995 IPO, um, you know, call that two years. It may have been less than two years. Um, and think about the number of companies these days that go through, you know, seed round, series A, B, C, D, E in terms of funding. Um, you know, we weren't necessarily necessarily uh, funding companies for lots and lots of rounds. We were at a stage where, um, you know, just purely on hype, oftentimes companies would go public. Um, I don't know that Netscape necessarily had figured out how to monetize the business, at least immediately. But anyways, we were doing IPOs very, very quickly. And that's important to remember as we get into bigger things. Uh, 1994, company called La uh, company called Yahoo launches. Uh, Yahoo exclamation point. Uh, a couple of guys out of Stanford, uh, Jerry Yang, and um, I forget the other guy's name. I feel bad about that. I should have done better homework. Uh, they launched in 1994. They were essentially the company who were sort of the first search engine. They were the first company to figure out um, as people were putting inter information out on this new nascent thing, or at least nascent to the general public, uh, called the internet, um, people were starting to put information out there. They were putting them on these new sort of fangled things called web servers or things that would serve up HTML and H you know, HTML pages. And Yahoo was the company that sort of did the first searching uh, and crawling of the internet, the, the very small nascent internet that it was. Uh, and basically publishing a gigantic directory of what's on the internet. So you would go to Yahoo and be like, hey, what's new? Uh, what's cool out there in gardening or sports or art or whatever? Um, so they were really sort of the very first, you know, people from AOL would argue about this, but the sort of, sort of first public, freely open internet. They were sort of the homepage of that. So again, this was 1994. Again, they went IPO in about two years or so. Um, now, one of the things that was really, really important at the time, and most people probably didn't necessarily have any idea this was going on, but there was um, like one major long distance carrier in the United States. And this is, again, some of this is going to seem very US centric. So if you're in the rest of the world, you know, listen in as much as you want. Some of this has, has kind of rippled down, um, down into your parts of the world as well. But, but back in the time, uh, United States, there was one company that did all pretty much all of long distance. That was AT&T. And AT&T essentially had a monopoly on all of long distance. And what ended up happening was something called the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And people can dig into this. Um, there was some previous stuff that happened before that broke up, uh, uh, that had broken up the monopoly of AT&T into, I believe, eight regional carriers. They were called Regional Bell Operating Companies, or RBOX. And essentially, there was, if you think about the United States, uh, you know, take the United States map, divide it into sort of eight chunks, um, and there were sort of eight companies that were your local telephone provider. Now, if you're a younger person, if you're in your probably in your 30s, you probably can't even fathom the concept. But there used to be the idea of like local telephone service. Now, let me step back. You have to think about the idea that you had a telephone in your house that was wired to the to the wall. But so there was a telephone in your house wired to the wall that had a phone number on it. And if you wanted to make local phone calls, meaning like in your city, not necessarily like in your state, but in your city, you had a local phone company. So like I live in the south part of the United States. We had a company called Bell South, right? Um, there was, you know, a New England one. There was a California one. There was, you know, regional ones. So you would make a local call and certain local calls were covered for a certain amount of money per month, call it 30 or $40 per month. But if you needed to make a phone call outside of that local region, 
what we called a long distance phone call. And I know that seems weird, the idea of like distance. Um, you had to go not only through your local carrier, but then through a long distance carrier. And the long distance carrier was a different carrier than your local carrier. And you had to think about those things. And those phone calls probably cost anywhere from $2 a minute to $20 or $30 a minute, right? So um, again, if you're a young person who deals with nothing but mobile phones, that those concepts are going to seem totally foreign to you. You won't have any idea what they mean. But the reason all that stuff was really important was because when the Telecommunications Act of 1996 came along, it basically said, we are going to... Uh, disaggregate or disintermediate or sort of break up the idea of regional carriers and national carriers, right? It allowed any carrier to operate anywhere they wanted to. And why that became very, very important was there was some new technology that was coming along. Well, there was a part of that that had to do with just regulations and the carriers wanting to be able to branch out into other parts of the world or not other parts of the world, other parts of the United States. They thought they were more efficient. But the other part of this that was really interesting was that there was a bunch of technology coming along, namely this internet technology, and it was allowing people to say, hey, if I want to carry voice or video or data um, over the internet as opposed to going over telephone lines, now keep in mind, again, this is a weird concept if you're young, there was completely separate telephone networks and completely separate data networks. Oh, and by the way, there was also completely separate cable networks for video. Um, but anyways, so back in the day, totally different thing. Everything wasn't TCP IP. Everything didn't run over one network. Um, and so, but you, what you had was you had various carriers, telcos, if you will, who said, we would like to carry more services over the infrastructure that we had, and we'd like to be able to move outside of our region. And so fast forward a little bit, and you think about that, all of a sudden you had people saying, oh, well, if this new data technology, i.e. the internet, i.e. TCP IP, could carry a bunch of different types of traffic, boy, that gets really interesting, right? So there's probably an entire show or multiple shows that we could do on just all that transformational technology. But just keep in mind that all of a sudden, the internet as a thing for doing more than just like email or finding a recipe or whatever was about to explode and the economics of it were about to explode because the regulations that had been holding it back and allowing things to intermingle or carry over distances were basically going away. And these things kind of went away overnight. And so it was a lot of totally wild, wild west stuff in terms of, you know, what's possible, what's allowed, where can we, you know, what can we do? So that was going on. In the United States, another thing that happened around this time, 1997, you had the U.S. Taxpayer Relief Act, which basically was trying to uh, boost the economy, and they lowered the rate, the tax rate for investments. So if you were making investments in the stock market, for example, and held on to those as gains, uh, the rate that you would pay in taxes was going down, both as an individual, but also as a corporation. And so this encouraged a whole bunch of people to uh, potentially take their money uh, and invest it into the stock market because if you were successful with that, the amount of taxes that you paid were lower. And again, it was encouraging sort of investment into stock and growth and also those sorts of things. So so you had a couple of different things going on. You had extra money starting to float around in the economy. Uh, people were interested in investing in things. You had this whole uh, set of, of regulations sort of unburdening the technology industry, both the IT industry, but also the telecom industry. Um, and then you had some new technologies coming along like web browsers and search engines and other stuff like that. Now, I want to put a couple of things in perspective in terms of other things from a timing perspective, because some of the things that we completely take for granted these days or just kind of expect are around didn't necessarily exist or they're just beginning to exist. So a couple of things. Uh, Linux, created in 1991, uh, the company that sort of commercialized Linux, Red Hat, uh, IPO'd in 1996. Google, founded in 1998, so the latter part of the internet bubble, didn't IPO until 2004. Google was not the original search engine. Uh, it was it was uh, hit or miss whether or not they were going to be that big a deal. Uh, Amazon, founded in 1994, IPO'd 1997, uh, this weird company that was going to sell you books over the internet. That was the very first thing they did. Um, AWS did not launch until 2006, after the bubble, well after the bubble. 
A um, couple other things, uh, just as random stuff, and then I'm going to go through some technology. Um, Windows 95, which again, at the time, if you were a individual user, you had a PC and you had a Windows machine. Like those were your choices. There was no, there were no Macs for the most part. Most people didn't use a Mac. Uh, if you were doing things for business or if you're doing things for work, you essentially were using a Windows PC. Windows 95 comes out in late uh, second half of 1995. Um, it finally added native TCP/IP stack into it. Previous to that, you had to go and buy a TCP/IP stack. Right, essentially the software, the protocols the addressing that would get you on the internet didn't come built into computers until late 1995. And so it was into 1996 and others as people upgraded to Windows 95. Uh, Internet speeds at the time were roughly, this was average, 1995, 1998, average 24 kilobits to 56 kilobits per second. Now, many of you are on 100 megabit links, gigabit links. Um, This was really, really small. So all the graphics and all the video and all the visuals and all the things that we expect all the time. And I mean, think of this as like, this is slower than most of your bad cell phone coverage, 3G type of stuff. Okay. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this, and I'll leave this and then I'll go jump into the technology. Um, Everybody, the last couple of times we've had huge technology booms and busts, uh, interest rates have been super low. Interest rates at this time, and everybody's freaking out now in 2023, interest rates at this time average like five and a half to 7%. And that's sort of the base interest rates, you know, US interest rates. So for everybody freaking out right now, it's like, oh my God, there's nothing that can be done with the interest rate environment that we're in right now. And it's grown like the internet first internet bubble or first internet growth that was, you know, pretty robust, uh, six, seven, 8% interest rates. Okay. So, um, that kind of gives you a sense, um, a little bit of wild west, some deregulations happened, some interesting new technologies going on. Um, some companies that will be foundation are starting to form. Uh, but here's a list of stuff that didn't really exist before or during the internet bubble. Okay. Now they, there's a few nuances. I'll highlight them. Linux didn't, as I mentioned, Linux sort of first came out 1991. Um, Linux for a long time, and you can go back and look and the famous Steve Ballmer rants and all those sort of things. Linux wasn't really a thing uh, until late in the 90s as even like a rebel thing, right? So Linux as the OS didn't really exist during this time. It was very much Windows and proprietary Unixes. Open source anything, databases, middleware, app servers, web servers, didn't exist during this time. Um, x86 servers as sort of big, you know, business type servers or things didn't really exist. They were just starting to kind of move out of being, um, you know, PCs. Uh, Laptops were very, very expensive at the time. They were very rare. It was mostly PCs and it was some sort of like small application computing was using x86. Uh, fast wide area networks didn't exist. We're talking about like a T1 speed, 1.5 megabit was fast for businesses, right? For end users at your house, you had a modem, right? Fast LAN access didn't exist. You know, when we were in the mid to late 90s, um, if you got 10 megabits at work, you were sharing that 10 megabits with another 20 or 30 people, right? We didn't get dedicated 10 megabits until the latter part of the 90s. Uh, We didn't get 100 megabit ethernet until well into the early 2000s. So slow WANs, slow LANs, Wi-Fi didn't exist. Native TCP IP didn't exist until 1996. Native NIC cards, like you had to install NIC card, network interface card. You had to install an ethernet card into your PC, a physical thing. You had to go to the store or order it from some company called 3Com or Chipcom or a whole bunch of them. Like just native networking didn't exist in a lot of machines until late 96, 97, 98. Native video players in the browser didn't exist. You had to install some separate piece of technology. Cloud providers, AWS, Azure, Google, whatever, didn't exist. Even like Rackspace didn't exist. Google search didn't exist. Internet advertising, the concept of the thing that basically built all of these gigantic uh, services that we use all the time that, that are free to everybody because they're paid for by internet advertising. That concept didn't really exist at the beginning of the internet bubble. They hadn't quite figured out. They thought the original internet bubble concept was we are just going to replicate things that people do in the physical world 
on the internet. We're just going to do like retail or we're going to do, I don't know, whatever. Most of it was just like, we're going to figure out retail on the internet. They thought it was just going to be, you just buy stuff over the internet. We're going to get rid of stores. The concept of internet advertising being the fuel that funds everything didn't really exist. Personal mobile phones didn't really exist. You could get one. I went to a store one time uh, to buy a mobile phone. It had no internet based built into it. You could buy the phone for like a penny or two pennies, but then your bill every month was extremely high because, again, you were paying for local service and long-distance service. But the way that we have computing in our pocket didn't exist. Online payments didn't really exist. PayPal was kind of coming along, but, again, it was always tied to uh, you know you physically being at a computer, and for the most part, your physical computer didn't move around with you. And then finally, uh, in my sort of list of didn't really exist, San Francisco was not the center of the first internet bubble. People forget this. Silicon Valley, the one that we talked about during the bubble time, was really down more around San Jose, Santa Clara, places like Cisco and Sun Microsystems and uh, Oracle and, you know, Microsoft was up in Redmond, but like Intel, you know, so that Santa Clara, uh, San Jose was the Silicon Valley that we talked about. Okay. So 20 minutes into this, I've set the stage. Uh, we had a lot of interesting economic things going on. We had a lot of technology that didn't really exist at the time. Um, so how did all this stuff happen? What was going on? Well, you know, as we're seeing with AI today, and especially with open AI being sort of the first interface to being like, ooh, wow, something is possible here, right? You started having people, especially, you know, kind of well-known people. So everybody from Bill Gates wrote a very famous, um, he called it the Internet Tidal Wave Letter. He wrote in 1995 to Microsoft. Um, you just had a whole lot of people who were going, oh, wow, if we could put, you know, all of the information of the world out into a place that people could reach it, depend, irregardless of where they lived, um, what's possible, right? So a lot of big open-ended questions of what's possible. And then obviously the secondary kind of piece that came along was, well, okay, if we are going to change the dynamics of how human communication happens, uh, human information is shared, uh, transactions of the economy happen, all sorts of things, what does the new economic play, uh, playing field look like? What are the new rules of the game? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? What's going to be disrupted? So that thing that we do on the internet all the time now uh, of like, oh, this thing's come along. It's going to completely replace the old thing. Like that was happening. That was getting started. And it was really kind of the first era in which people really weren't sure who was going to win, right? So keep in mind, we went through the earliest, earliest computing days, IBM one, IBM one for a very long time. And I'll look and see, I've got some stuff in my notes about how big the companies were at the time. Um, I have to go find them. Uh, but just to give you a perspective, when the internet first kind of got started or not the internet, but this nineties sort of got started, IBM was 10, 20 times as big a market cap as Microsoft is 20 times as big as Oracle. Um, you know, so we were still in that era where, uh, you know, we'd gone from mainframe to mini computer. We were just starting to come out of mini computer. People were using PCs. They were pretty widely in use, but there really wasn't sort of the dominant company. Uh, we, we weren't sure who was going to dominate us. Was it going to be Microsoft again? Was it going to be IBM again? Or was it going to be this completely different thing? Um, so everybody was sort of in the stage of like, okay, it feels like all the rules are going to change. We're at the beginning of what people were calling sort of the information age 1.0, internet age 1.0. Um, everybody was talking about it in the context of like, we've been through the industrial age and the iron age and all these sort of things. This is a new age. Everything's changed. And what you had happen was you had a ton of people who moved to Silicon Valley, who moved from wherever, right? Like Mark Andreessen was a famous, you know, sort of, you know, well-known case, you know, just moved from... Uh, the Midwest and India, uh, yeah, Illinois out to Silicon Valley. But you had tons and tons of people who were just moving to Silicon Valley going, I want to be part of this, right? The same way, uh, probably very similar, although I wasn't there back in the 1840s, people might think I was, uh, you know, when the gold rush happened, they were just like, we want to be out there. Uh, because again, the whole idea of working from home didn't exist, <laughs> Right. Like, you know, remote internet working didn't exist. You went to the building. So you wanted to be in Silicon Valley and people were moving there in droves. Um, companies were starting. 
Now, <clears throat> so that was that was kind of the the mania. And again, you see a lot of this as we look at today's uh, modern AI, in which the technology wasn't brand new, but a few things happened. The economy was in a position where, okay, it was looking for growth. Um, some regulation had changed and, um, you know, things were, were available like, you know, we are today where there's a lot of money sort of still sloshing around the system. Um, the technology all of a sudden had an interface on it, right? So we talked about the browser and, and like ChatGPT being the interface that the masses can understand. You had tons and tons of people who were saying, uh, this is going to change all the rules, you know, Let's let's go redefine the rules. Let's go do that. So you had a lot of sort of maverick companies out there, and what you had uh, from a startup perspective was an interesting thing. And Aaron and I have talked about this a bunch of times on the show. You had uh, a bunch of VC capital, so companies like Sequoia and, and others um, who were pumping money into this. Now, what happened at the time was you had companies who were coming up with ideas, and as I mentioned, many of them were trying to replicate legacy concepts, uh, but in sort of a digital fashion, right? So, you know, I'll, I'll use the ones that are sort of tried and true that people talk about all the time, but like, you know, you had a lot of companies that would be like pets.com. Oh, well, what is pets.com? Well, pets.com is going after the idea that, you know, people around the world, or at least in America, love their pets, but they hate going to the pet store. You know, wouldn't it be just great if you could get pet food delivered to your house or, whatever, you know, the pet things you needed. So there were, you know, companies like pets.com that got started and pets.com goes to a Sequoia or some VC to get funded. They're essentially going to create a retail outlet, like a brick and mortar store, except in digital format on the internet. Now what happened there? Okay. You had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies trying to do this stuff. So what happens? What were the mechanics of that? Well, lots and lots of VCs were funding these companies because they were saying, hey, look, we're going to be able to do things more efficiently. We're going to be able to eliminate you know, the cost of stores. We're going to be able to eliminate brick and mortar, all that kind of stuff. We're going to be able to do things more efficiently, um, whatever it was. And so the VCs would give them a bunch of money, right? Uh, and the whole goal of it was, I'm going to give you a bunch of money. Let's get not just like a proof of concept going, right? There was none of this sort of like fail fast concept. It was like, let's apply an MBA theory to this. Let's build a business like overnight uh, because we're doing it with technology instead of brick and mortar and all sorts of stuff. I will give you a whole bunch of money and you will build the company. And the mechanics of what that what that did was that first, and Aaron and I have mentioned this before, that first 25, 30, 40, $50 million that went to a company went to buying the technology, basically building out a data center or going to some sort of colo, but building out a data center and giving that first gigantic chunk of money to four or five companies, Cisco for networking, um, you know, Sun for computers and servers, Oracle for databases. Uh, you were paying Intel and Microsoft to buy, uh, you know, computers and laptops for people. And so again, we've talked about this as like, this was sort of pre AWS, you were going to buy and own all this equipment. So those companies in particular were growing like crazy. I mean, Cisco was literally the Pied Piper of the internet. And I happened to work at Cisco at the time, so I've, I've got some experience in this. Um, so, you know, when every one of your customers or your potential customers are doing that and they are saying, we need to build all of the infrastructure to be able to do whatever this digital business is, um, those companies were making a lot of money. And the world was looking at them and they were saying, there is no ceiling to this. This is the future. This is going to be a 100-year evolution or 50-year evolution. And so the stock of those companies was going up like crazy. And just to give you some perspective, so I went to work for Cisco in 1996. Uh, my first job, uh, they gave me a 1,000 options. Now, this is another key thing for anybody who's following along these days that's very different. Um, they gave me a 1,000 options at whatever the price was. I forget whatever the price was. Um, the concept of RSUs didn't really exist for regular rank and file people. They gave you stock options. Now that all changed after the internet bubble because um, the the government changed how companies had to account for stock options. But back in the day, they really didn't have to account for stock options. So they would give you some amount of stock options. And while they were supposed to sit on the books as like a potential asset, you didn't really have to account for them. And so this allowed companies to give away 
lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of options that, again, may or may not have ever panned out, but they didn't cost the company anything. And so what they were doing is basically selling you on, hey, commit to the company, commit to our journey, commit to our, our, our growth and our goal, and you could be wildly rewarded, right? So in my case, I uh, went to work for Cisco. I was like 23, 24 years old. They gave me a thousand options. Now, the numbers don't really matter, but just to put it in perspective, um, and they vested over four years, just like everything else does. Now, within uh, a year and a half or two years, those options had doubled, doubled. They had two for one split, a two for one split, like a three for two split, and maybe a two for one split. But in essence, that original thousand shares I had in about a year and a half became 9,000 shares. And for those of you that aren't familiar, go look up stock splits. I'll put a link in the show notes. In essence, um, nobody wanted to have a thousand dollar stock because they were hard to buy in as a one share of stock. So companies wanted to keep their shares like under a hundred dollars. Cause again, that whole thing going on in 1997 of trying to encourage people to buy into the stock market. I'll put some links in the show notes for those of you that are interested in the math of it. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore today, but, um, so what you had was, uh, you had all these people working for technology companies who were wildly invested or not wild, you know, partially vested, but, uh, constantly thinking about what's the value of our company because, Back in the day, from about 96 to about 99, early parts of 2000, the stock was going up a dollar a day. It was going up $2 a day. Like it was, it was insane. And to put it in perspective, um, you know, as a, somebody working for Cisco at the time, so I worked in North Carolina, but I traveled to California about two times a month, three times a month. You would walk down the hallway and every single person in the cubicle would have their computer up and they would have this little widget running uh, on their computer, sort of in the top right corner that would have the stock price. And you were constantly watching it and you were constantly watching probably 10 other stocks or companies that you had their stock ticker. Cause here's what was going on. And again, you know, these, these historical things happen over and over again. You had people who were, you know, in their twenties or in their thirties who were like, we are going to settle down in California. This is this is the new gold rush. You know, this is 1849 all over again. Um, we want to buy in an area that's somewhat nearby because we don't want to have our two hour long commutes. We'd love to live in, uh, you know, the local areas. And they were buying a thousand square foot house, 1200 square foot house, 1500 square foot house that had gone on the market on a Friday at $650,000, which in and of itself seems insane, or at least it did way back in the day. Maybe it doesn't now. And the bidding by the end of the weekend, that house had sold for $1.2 million. And you had somebody who was making fifty dollars or $60,000 bidding on a $1.2 million house with the whole prospect of, well, I have all these options that are growing like a rocket ship. They will be able to take care of my mortgage. They'll be able to take care of paying for the house. And so you had people that always had one eye on what was happening with the business, and they had one eye on what was happening with the stock market because their entire life was dependent on that stock price continuing to go up and to the right and the the growth of the internet continuing to go up and to the right. And so, you know, you had an entire region of the world that was completely dependent on the internet growing like crazy. Now, this again trickled down into all sorts of just everyday average people going, well, my 401k or my um, my IRA or my savings should go into the stock market. And you had people who you know, had no idea what a Cisco was or an EMC was or an Intel was or whatever, who you would see them, uh, you'd be on an airplane, you'd be walking through an airport and you'd have a, a Cisco shirt on. I would you know, travel all over the place and people would go, oh yeah, I know Cisco. Yeah, I, I bought them for my 401k. I bought them for my, for my stock portfolio. My, my broker told me to buy you guys. And it was just like, you were like, wow, do you, do you even know what we do? And they're like, no, I have no idea. But they said, that's a good one. They said, it just goes up all the time. So you had these manias going on. And the other crazy part of it was, um, while the companies that were that were providing technology did incredibly well uh, for a while because it was VC funded and then, you know, people were buying it, you know, businesses were trying to then go, okay, well, how do we become part of this new internet? Um, <clears throat> you, you had the other flip side of it was a lot of these companies basically took, you know, an old MBA concept, 
and tried to apply it to technology and tried to apply it to the internet. And it didn't necessarily work, right? You had companies that were full of uh, consultants, Harvard and you know Ivy League consultants and Accenture consultants who were like, oh, I know how retail delivery works. We're going to start a company. And then they were doing it with vans. It just happened to be that the vans were linked together with computers instead of with paper. And so unfortunately, what we had was uh, a humongous amount of technology that was created, um, but wasn't really ready for just the onslaught of demand, right? There wasn't a lot of bandwidth. Uh, the equipment was still very expensive. There was no on-demand concepts. There was no sort of free technology like open source that was going to offsort out, uh, kind of off offload the technology cost of being able to do these build-outs. There was no on-demand concepts. There wasn't fast internet. There wasn't, uh, it was hard to get the technology to work. It wasn't all just sort of built in. And so you ran into the classic example of huge expectations, uh, overblown expectations without people really, really understanding what was going on. You had technology that was still fairly immature. Um, The economics of it didn't necessarily match the expectations. And and you had, uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies who had been funded who had no business models, had no real way that their best PowerPoint slides and their best concepts of what people would do to pay for this stuff didn't match reality. People weren't confident with paying for things over the internet, right? There was sort of a boogeyman concept of like, well, you might get your money stolen. Um, they weren't sure if they order something over the internet, like when was it ever going to show up? How do I know that it's going to show up? If I go to a store and buy a shirt or a pair of jeans, at least I can touch them and grab them and feel them. And I can take them back to the store if they don't fit. Well, how am I going to go to pets.com? Right? Like, so it was the, you know, kind of classic mismatch of, you know, for, for a while it was, uh, exciting. It was really exciting. Uh, it was, you can't believe what is going to, what's, what's possible. There was every day was something new and what was possible, but you also had, you know, bad business models, um, money being spent, uh, both on technology that wasn't going to scale and wasn't going to work and was complicated, but you also had, you know, kind of a, a mantra feel going on. And then what ended up ultimately sort of killing off this thing was, um, you had a lot of companies that went IPO. They were, uh, you know, kind of pre pre profits, if you will, but there was no Sarbanes Oxley at the time. There was nothing that really, um, had to be really vigorous and diligent about making sure that the companies wanting to go IPO, uh, you know, were, were disclosing all the information to shareholders or to potential investors. They just sort of had to sell you on a story. And so, you know, as we moved in from the middle 1990s into the late 1990s and so forth, you know, you started having companies who were going bankrupt. You started having companies who, you know, weren't making their numbers. You had companies who, you know, were, you know, were struggling to prove out their business models. And as soon as a couple of those started to falter, um, you know, the market as it, as it always does, it lives on fear and, and, and greed, fear and uncertainty went from, you know, being in full on greed mode and allowing, you know, anything to, to get away as long as the stock was going up two or $3 a day and they were potentially making a lot of money to complete fear of like, oh, if pets.com failed or webvan.com failed or whatever it was, I bet every single one of these are all built on the same sort of, you know, shifting sands or, or soft uh, foundation. And so by, uh, you know, 2000, 2001, um, you know, you started having, uh, some failures happen. You started having, um, you, you know, companies who were coming out and saying like, Hey, you know, the, the plan we had didn't work out. Um, and then you started to have, you know, companies who were, uh, very, very paranoid about this other really big thing that was going on, which was, uh, the Y2K thing. And so for those of you not familiar, Y2K was this concern with, uh, lots and lots of operating systems that were built, uh, you know, uh, Unix and, and others that were built, uh, at least originally designed, uh, in, you know, at the time to only understand two digits of the year. And so we are going to move from 1999 to 2000. And their concern was when we roll over to 2000, that's going to roll over to the year being zero, zero, not 2000, but zero, zero. And all these computer systems are going to say, Oh, 
we didn't move into 2000, we moved into 1900 and they're all going to freak out. And so, um, you know, the, the, the bubble and the mania was going on as we got in later in the 1990s, 1998, 1999 companies were like, uh, I'm going to have to probably hold back a little bit on all this internet stuff because my computers are probably all going to roll over and die. I've been told by every computer scientist under the sun that they're all going to roll over and die. I better start spending some time on that. And so Y2K became uh, you know, a huge, huge thing for the industry. It became a huge priority for the industry. Uh, fortunately, it didn't really pan out. I mean, lots of lots of uh, upgrades and patching and stuff got done such that there weren't any catastrophic failures. Uh, lots of us were sitting on pins and needles and on and on on call uh, the evening of of uh, December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, waiting to help fix com- help companies try and fix their banks that went down and retail sites that went down. Uh, for the most part, people got that done ahead of time. But um, between the the failures of those early business models failing, and then sort of the shift to Y2K, um, that really sort of took the the air out of the, you know, the internet bubble. And it was a really interesting time. Um, people went from being as optimistic as they possibly could be because this stuff was, was impacting sort of all of society. You know, people were starting to use the internet. That was cool. They were learning new things. They were meeting new people. They were being exposed to stuff. Uh, their bank accounts were growing because they were invested in the stock market. So it, you know, it wasn't just the techies and the nerds who were benefiting. It was sort of everybody was benefiting. And then all of a sudden it just sort of, it crashed. And I know for me personally, um, uh, you know, I, I, again, I was, I was young at the time. I was in my early 20s. I remember talking to my mother and she said, Hey, you know, I'm glad you're doing well and I'm glad things are going well. I hope you're putting some of the money away because, you know, this stuff won't, won't last forever. And I remember always telling her mom, I mean, you, you don't understand, like this stuff is, is going to go on for a long, long time. This is the internet revolution. I mean, the industrial revolution went on for decades and decades. And she said, well, let me give you something to look out for. Let me, let me give you a kind of a red flag. Cause she had obviously she's older. She'd been through some things. She said, Every time your company announces their earnings and they, they do better in their earnings, they're going to go up and they're going to go up for a little while because they, they beat people's forecast. She said, but if your company ever announces that they didn't make their number, and I mean by a penny of what they were supposed to, they missed their earnings by just a little bit. She said, the stock market will kill your company, not, not physically kill it, not to zero kill it, but they will they will essentially punish you like you you can't believe. And she said, so just you know, be careful, uh, be wise about how you're saving your money so that when that time comes that you don't make your number, you're not blindsided. Now, I distinctly remember being in a uh, customer's offices in New York City. And back in the time, uh, the, the equivalent of CNBC was on all the time. And Cisco's John Chambers, uh, who was CEO at the time and was essentially the Pied Piper of the internet, uh, happened to be doing the quarterly earnings announcement and going around to the Maria Bartolomeos Romos and whoever the the money people were at the time. And I remember him being like, we're not going to make the quarter. And this was like a pre-announcement. This wasn't even the official announcement. This is like a pre-announcement. And the stock at the time, I think, was around $90 a share. <clears throat> Within uh, a few hours, it was $70 a share. And at the time, a lot of us were like, oh, okay, this is a blip. We've seen some blips happen before, like some other piece of the economy had some struggles and it kind of impacted the market for a little bit. This is a blip. And I had completely, because I was so hung up in the mania, had completely forgotten the advice, the most basic advice my mom had given me. She said, you know, if you miss your numbers, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to crush you. And so we watched the stock go from $90 at the time to $70 within a few days, a few hours, whatever it was. And then over the next month or so, we watched it drop down to 60 and $50 and didn't sell because we thought we've seen this before. Why would, why would we sell? Why would we sell the most valuable commodity that there is this thing that's going up all the time? Like we're living in the middle of this. We're watching, we're so busy at work. I mean, we're just making new technology. We're acquiring companies. I think while I was there, we acquired 125 companies in like five years. I mean, we were, we were rock and rolling and then we watched it go to 40 and 37 and 38 and you were just like, well, wait, when, when is it going to come back? When, when is this thing going to rebound? I mean, like the, 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 the internet idea hasn't gone away. The, the internet potential hasn't gone away, but we didn't realize at the time. And again, we were young. We hadn't lived through, 
failures was that the market is fast to get excited about something and to jump on the mania and to to boost the idea of what's possible. Because as technologists and even as humans, we love the idea of potential. We love the idea of hope. What's possible? Could things get better? Could things get bigger? And if, by the way, we also happen to, you know, economically benefit from that, boy, that's like, you know, one plus one equals a thousand. But what we can't wrap our head around is like, oh, wait, that didn't happen. But what does happen in the marketplace is the marketplace when you don't deliver or when the big promise turns out to be not as big as you originally thought it was, they tend to take a reset. And they don't just take a reset on you, but in the case of the dot-com bubble, people took a reset on technology overall. And all of a sudden, anybody who was a financial advisor or whatever it was said, hey, maybe tech's not the place to have your money. Don't be so consolidated around tech. Start putting it in things that are more tangible, right? Like you don't know what Cisco does, or you don't know what web.com does, or you don't know what this Amazon weird thing does, or whatever it is. Start putting your money in things that are tangible. And hence, the end of the dot-com bubble begat the beginning of the housing run-up that eventually became the 2008 housing bubble. So these things are all sort of linked together. Uh, but, you know, so, you know, as I think back on it, uh, it was a fantastically interesting time. Really, really interesting. Um, but, you know, it's go back and, and look at the technology that was there. We'll, we'll do a show in 2008, what technologies were available there. I think the lessons we learned are, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the infrastructure has to match the ambitions or at least has to be in the ballpark. Um, business models for all the hype and, and fluff and PowerPoint presentations, whatever, they always come back to revenues and profitability. You've got to be able to figure out a way to do that. Um, every wave potentially will create new winners. Um, this one, uh, you know, sort of was the end of sun. Um, it was not the end of Cisco. Cisco continued to, to go through it, but it, Cisco is not the biggest company in the world anymore. Um, you know, Google began to become a thing after this and Amazon began to become a thing after this. Um, but it's also really, under, it's really important to understand, are we in a mania, uh, as we are, uh, as we were back then, maybe we are right now with, with AI, I don't know, we're still there. Um, but understand the difference between manias and fundamentals. You know, where does where does one stop? Where does one begin? What are the fundamentals in a wave? Like, what should you be looking for? And the last thing, I guess, and I'll wrap it up there, is that, uh, you know, there's always going to be smart money. But at the end of the day, there's usually more, more dumb money. And dumb money, uh, unlike smart money, always finds a bottom. Because it always believes, just like a gambler sitting at a table, even though they've lost... Uh, 20 hands in a row and they should just walk away, it's going to come back. The, the next thing is, you know, the, the, you know, whatever I thought was going to happen, the emotional decisions I made, they're going to come back. And so dumb money always tends to find a bottom. Um, so be careful not to, to be dumb money. But anyways, I hope that was somewhat useful. Hopefully, if Forrest happens to listen to this, maybe he finds any of that useful. Happy to answer questions or do follow-ups and stuff. But I think I'm going to do uh, maybe one more version of this or maybe two more versions that hit on how this led into what happened in the run-up from 2000, basically about 2003 to 2008. And then we'll talk about, you know, once the, the, the housing bubble crashed and we went through back again of like, okay, now what do we do? Uh, you know, how did that sort of rebound? Uh, we'll we'll kind of go through, you know, how we got all the way through 2023. So hopefully this was useful. This is a really long show. My voice is starting to probably get a little bit hoarse. I apologize for that. But uh, this was sort of a fun one for somebody who lived through this uh, to go back and research it a little bit and remember all the different things that created uh, kind of all this bubble and, and surplus and, and craziness and mania and all this sort of stuff. So anyways, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 